0: The New Testament lesson today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is the story of the Gerasene demoniac, and there are a number of things in this text that merit a sermon in their own right. There's the problem of demons, multiple demons in this case, and what we make of that. There's the issue of the poor pigs who meet a terrible end in this text, and the economic impact of that. There's much we could return to in this text. But for our purposes today, the punchline is at the end, so listen carefully now for the word of the Lord as it comes to us from the Gospel of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always howling and bruising himself with stones." When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me.'" For Jesus had said to him, "'Come out of the man, you unclean spirit.'" Then Jesus asked him, "'What is your name?' He replied, "'My name is Legion, for we are many.'" He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swineherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And our psalm text today is Psalm 145, a psalm of praise. And as I read it, I would invite you to imagine this psalm on the lips of the garrison demoniac as he returns to his friends to tell them how much the Lord has done for him. Listen once again for the word of the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. The might of your awesome deeds shall be proclaimed, and I will declare your greatness. They shall celebrate the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfying the desires of every living thing. The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all his doings. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church members do not always agree about everything, of course, but one thing almost all congregations agree on is the desire to increase our membership and participation, right? Churches want more people to join them. We want to be a part of something that more and more people want to be a part of. Churches want to grow, and they should. Our church is no different, of course. We love the excitement of introducing new members to our midst, and our longtime members want to know that the church's ministries will remain vibrant and effective long after they are gone. Healthy churches, in most contexts anyway, should grow and should want to grow, not because bigger is necessarily better but because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a beautiful and compelling thing. Now, there was a time in our country when church growth wasn't especially hard, or so I'm told, at least according to the recollections of those who were alive in those days. I was not. Church membership was assumed in much of society. Sundays and even Wednesday nights were largely reserved for church participation, And, whether it was theologically sound or not, there was some semblance of a collective Christian national identity. These days, of course, things are quite different. It's well documented that church membership is in decline, whether in mainline or evangelical denominations. The percentage of overall charitable giving that goes to religion has decreased from 53% in 1985 to just 31% today. General mistrust in institutions and organizations among younger people leads many to declare that they're spiritual but not religious, theists but not Christians. And they worship God on Sunday morning, but often from the golf course or the hiking trail, rather than from the pews. So we have this collective desire for church growth that quickly bumps up against the realities of our society and our culture. So the challenge is that in order to grow, churches must engage in something that was once assumed and taken for granted, but that today has become perplexing and held in some degree of suspicion. And that thing, of course, is evangelism. Perhaps the word evangelism makes you uneasy right out of the gate. Maybe it conjures certain images in your mind of street preachers with megaphones and signs or television preachers offering empty promises of wealth and prosperity as the fruit of genuine faith. In some ways, evangelism has come to be associated with pressure to conform, signing off on a checklist of all the right beliefs and making sure that when you die and make your way to the afterlife, after you connect in Atlanta— you catch the narrow-body jet bound for heaven rather than the wide-body jet bound for you nowhere. I think evangelism makes us uneasy because it's no longer socially polite to talk about religion. We don't want to be accused of forcing our beliefs on anyone, a mortal sin in today's world. Your personal beliefs are personal, after all, and so are mine. So Telling other people what or how to think is an affront, and certainly out of fashion. Churches need evangelism to grow, but can evangelism be salvaged? Can the church make a plan to evangelize faithfully and well? Or does our society's distaste for religious conversation render evangelism unpalatable? Well, our scripture texts today help illuminate the question. Upon his deliverance from a legion of demons, the formerly possessed, garrisoned man asks Jesus if he can join him and the disciples on their journey. But Jesus refuses, it's interesting, and instead he gives the man a charge and a commission. Go home to your friends, he says and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and what mercy he has shown you." And the man does exactly that. He went away, the text said, and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And it worked. The gospel spread. Everyone was amazed, the text says. And so the man becomes emblematic. Of, the, of Psalm 145, which says, The might of God's awesome deeds shall be proclaimed. The man's story aligns with the confession of faith found in the psalm. The Lord upholds those who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. You see, the garrison man has a story to tell about God's grace at work in his life. He doesn't hold back from telling his story. It's his testimony. It's his confession of faith. Something amazing has happened to him. So amazing, in fact, that others are amazed upon hearing what he has to say. His evangelism, his proclamation, takes the form of telling his story of his encounter with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now in my experience with mainline churches and Christians, I've often seen a desire to avoid proclamation when it comes to evangelism. The perception seems to be that talking about God inevitably means you're forcing your beliefs on someone else. So the evangelism approaches we often adopt aim for the visibility of our good works Instead of the proclamation of God's work in our midst. One of the most often repeated quotes I hear about sharing the gospel, which is falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, by the way, goes like this Preach the gospel everywhere, and when necessary, use words. Ah, how nice is that! I can preach the gospel all the time without ever having to say anything. I can just live like a nice person and then people be like oh that brian i like that person he must be a christian i want to be a christian too isn't that great friends it doesn't work like that i hate to tell you it's not that simple because lots of people not just christians believe in the gospel of good works most people regardless of their faith want to make the world a better place christians are not the only ones who want to alleviate poverty and feed the hungry and stand against racism. What's different about Christians is that we do these things not for our own glory, not for the glory of some vague concept of humanity or the human species. We do these things for the glory of the God we believe created and loves all people. We do these things because we believe that Jesus Christ has assigned every person we meet unsurpassable worth because everyone we meet is someone for whom Jesus died. We do these things because we believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in the world, able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. And good news like that is worth talking about. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It's not that words alone can take the place of concrete, embodied actions in the world – no, of course not. Of course, the Christian life is important. Of course, we are to be doers of the word and not just hearers of it. Of course, Christianity is more than a confession of faith, but a call to live a radically changed life in the world. Jesus doesn't just tell the Gerasene demoniac that God is merciful. Jesus acts mercifully toward the man and restores him to new life. But then Jesus commissions him to go and tell others about it. Jesus insists that the man go and tell his story. And not just that he became well, but that God healed him. Not just that he got his life back together, but that God had been merciful to him. Not just that he once was lost, but that in Jesus Christ... He had been found. There's no grand evangelism strategy here. It's not complicated. Jesus simply tells the garrison man to be willing to talk about what God has done in his life to anyone who will listen, beginning with those closest to him, his friends and family. The Greek text goes like this. Go to those that are yours and announce to them, How much the Lord has done for you. And sure enough, lots of people listen. All the things that have become associated with the sort of evangelism that has fallen out of favor today are altogether absent from Jesus's commission here. There's no demand for conversion, there's no hidden agendas, no apologetics or philosophers or lawyers for Jesus. There's simply a call to tell a story And friends, everyone loves a gripping story. Everyone finds stories compelling. Let me tell you a story. I once visited the city dump in Guatemala City, where hundreds of people live. It was one of the most heartbreaking places I've ever been in my life. Visiting these sorts of places throughout the trip had challenged my faith and left me questioning How a loving God could allow such poverty to persist in the world. Most people, by the way, ask this question at some point in their journeys of faith. Some people ask it again and again. While we were at the dump, we stepped into the makeshift home of a woman who attended the church with which we were working. I remember vividly a Pepsi banner made up one of her walls. She was clearly very ill and malnourished. But all throughout our visit, she did nothing but tell us how much God had done for her. Every day when her son makes it home safely from school, she gives thanks to God for safe passage. She insisted that every, every evening she had something to eat, it was because God had provided it. And as far as she was concerned, any roof over her head, no matter how shabby, was a sign of God's protection. Shelter beneath God's wings, I can remember her saying the phrase in Spanish, forever associating the word alas, swings in Spanish, in my mind with a Pepsi banner. And I left the dump that day still wrestling with the same philosophical questions about how to make sense of suffering in the world. I still wrestle with those questions today. But I also left with profound admiration and astonishment at the great faith I had seen in such a tragic place. Her story and her testimony were so powerful to me, and they still are to this day. And That's the sort of faith that's contagious. You can't help but catch it. And friends, that's how disciples come to be. If we want to grow our church, if we want our faith to be so compelling to other people that they want to join us in our mission, then we have to be willing to speak about why our faith is consequential to us. We may not feel like we have all the answers, and that's probably better than feeling like we do, because being able to evangelize doesn't mean you have all the answers. It's about being willing to go and tell stories of what God has done in our lives and moments when God's grace and mercy have been manifested in our lives and in the world. My best friend and I talk every couple weeks, and over the years, he always asks me the same question, which has become deeply formative for my faith. He says, Brian, what is God doing in your life? What is God doing in your life? And sometimes, I can answer it right away, and sometimes I have to think about it for some time, but ultimately I know it's important that I be able to answer that question, because it's, it's a basic exercise right, in theological reflection. And God's movements are sometimes subtle and hard to detect. Considering then how we might answer a question about what God is doing in our lives helps to sharpen our vision and focus on all the ways God is infusing mercy into our lives. So if I asked you today what God is doing in your life, how would you answer me? What would you say? And could you answer the question not with hesitancy or equivocation, but with gratitude and astonishment? We should ask each other these sorts of questions. We should help each other think theologically about what God is doing in our midst, because such conversations increase our fluency in the language of faith and prepares us to be evangelists with stories to tell about all that God is doing in the world. One night at the Montreat Youth Conference uh, earlier this summer, a certain youth offered a prayer request for which we all prayed. And the next day, with great relief and wonder, the prayer was answered, and the youth whose prayer it was excitedly told us all, and we rejoiced together. Last week at youth group, some students were still talking about it, and they shared the story of the answered prayer with a student who hadn't been at Montreat, and they began the story with the phrase, this was the craziest thing, wonder. Wonder astonishment. Y'all, that's how it's done. The youth had a story to tell about God's mercy that they were eager to share. They didn't try to answer some philosophical question about why God doesn't answer every prayer with such expediency. They didn't insist on a certain response from the hearer of their story. They simply recounted with great amazement a moment when they saw God's mercy at work. Friends, that's how churches grow. That's how the gospel spreads. With stories of God's mercy on the tip of our tongues. May it be so. Alleluia, and thanks be to God. Amen.